Good morning, church. And it has been a joy to to live amongst us and to serve us and to also labor amongst us. So for the last time, as a single man, I'll ask you to turn to First John <laughs> chapter 3. First John chapter 3. And our consideration this morning would be from verse 18 to verse 24. It's primarily from verse 19, but verse 19 to 24 stands on verse 18. And so I will read to our hearing this morning from the English Standard Version. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and we are sure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. I have titled the sermon from condemnation to confidence. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we have come before your word. Forbid it, Lord, that anyone should boast in this sacred hour. But our hearts and our minds and our affections and everything in us will be fixed upon your Son and upon what he has done for our sake. Lord, we ask this morning that you speak to me and speak through me, and that in all things, Christ will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder, have you ever stayed away from a public prayer meeting because you were not feeling like it? Or have you ever even postponed your own times of private prayer because it was not working? You know those seasons where you're supposed to pray by 9 o'clock and then when 9 o'clock comes, you say, ah, I'm tired. I don't feel like there's something, there's, the connection is not there. Maybe perhaps you fought with your spouse or you had a rough day at work, you acted in a certain way, and when you want to pray, there seems to be this thing that is stopping you from going before God in prayer. Well, I have. I have experienced both of them. I've been in prayer meetings where I honestly did not want to pray. Some of us know this. Perhaps that's why every Friday, the, the prayer leader will talk for five minutes. Who wants to pray? 
and then everybody is cold. Because sometimes we don't feel like praying. Praying is something we know we ought to do and that we want to do, but we don't always feel like doing. If you have, like me, experienced this, then you have discovered a very, very vital truth about the Christian life. And it is this, that true prayer is not a joke. To pray is perhaps to carry out the most serious task that you can carry out as a Christian. Two days this past week, two of Nigeria's finest were in the city of Manchester. If they had gone to see the biggest football club in the world, that would have been very, very beautiful. But they did not go to see the biggest club in the world. They went to hold a conference, a revival conference. And so on Thursday night, I was just looking through my contact list, and a number of my friends were connected. So I said, come on, let me connect and also see what's happening. And so I joined online, but the, the sad thing was that I joined as Apostle was rounding up. So I said, let me just go back, because I can always rewatch. If it's a live video, I can rewatch. So I started rewatching the clip, and I started from the very first day. I went through when Pastor Nath came to minister with his trumpet and through some parts of the sermon, when some of his younger pastors who are now really big that we used to know back then, they came up. I said, ah, these guys are big boys. They're not in, London, in Manchester. But time flies. My problem was not with the revival. I did not have issues with the word revival. I did not have issues with whatever people said after the program. I had issues with the fact that it seems to be the case that we no longer understand what prayer is. Because from the start of the program, the man of God who opened the, the program, he has a ministry here in Abuja, came up, and by way of opening prayer, he said, let us begin to pray in the Holy Spirit. And then as the cymbals was hitting and the drummer was hitting this and hitting that, the whole place was charged up. And he did this repeatedly throughout the first night and throughout the second night. And in my mind, it really hits me, perhaps for the first time in a long while, that this is not prayer. This thing, according to the Bible, is not prayer. And what John wants to do for us this morning in our text is to apply all he has been teaching us so far from verse 1 of chapter 3 to the subject of prayer. And you can see this in the last two words of verse 19, before him. Some translations put this as in his presence. So whatever he's going to be talking to us now will be in the context of that activity of prayer in the Christian life. But we must begin by defining what prayer is. When I was preparing this sermon, I thought, well, everybody will know what prayer is. Until I got to Manchester via YouTube and I realized it's possible that many of us this morning do not know what prayer really is. And so we must start from there. What is prayer, biblically speaking? A Puritan by the name of John Bonyan, thinker of Bedford, 
wrote a book called Prayer. The title of the book is not Prayer anyways, but Banner of Truth published that book, and the title they gave to the book was Prayer. And in that book, he has perhaps the best definition I have seen on prayer. I'm not going to give it to us, but I'm recommending it to us as a helpful resource on the subject of prayer. But I glean from his own definition to present to us a proper definition of prayer. Prayer is a sincere pouring out of the soul unto God through Christ and by the Spirit in accordance to the word of God and in submission to the will of God. I'll take it again. Prayer is that sincere pouring out of a person's heart and soul unto God through Christ and by the Spirit made in accordance to the word of God and made in submission to the will of God. On what basis do I present this definition to us as a definition of prayer? Well, the Bible tells us, or God was speaking to the Israelites through Hosea in Hosea chapter 7, and God said that they do not cry to me from the heart. They do not cry to me from the heart. One thing that marks through prayer is this, that it is done from the heart. And before we start thinking that I am here this morning to fight with the charismatic people, how many times have we done this thing called prayer without sincerity? How many times have we just uttered the thing? Like, we're just, Lord, please bless heaven, bless earth, bless, without a sincerity of heart. How many times have we come to the place of prayer and because we have adopted a formula of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, or supplication. How many times have we really, really confessed our sins? How many times have we come sincerely speaking to God from our hearts? That is a marker of true prayer. It is on the basis of scriptures like Psalm 38 and verse 9 where David said, All my desire is before you and my sighing is not hid from you all my desire. You see, what marks prayer from ordinary conversation is that when you come to pray, your very heart is being brought before God. That when you come to pray, it is as if you take a shovel and you dig to the depths of your heart and you bring it out and you are conscious that that thing is before God. It is because of passages like this that Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, that everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Everything we do is easier than true prayer. You see, there's a sense in which preaching is easy. Yes, the preacher would have spent 10 to 15 hours on the text, dealing with the original languages, and comes and speaks for 40, to, 40 minutes to 60 minutes, and yet, that act of preaching is easier than 10 minutes of truly pouring our hearts before God. There's a sense in which reading books is easy. All you need to have is an appetite for reading. And you can actually read. Writing books is easy. All you need to do is to love writing, know how to research, know how to organize your point, be logical, and you can write a Christian book and it becomes a bestseller. 
Leading worship is easy. Teaching Sunday school is easy. Many of the duties we see in the Christian life, when compared to prayer, it's easy. Prayer is the most difficult thing a person can do. You know, I may be here this morning, and I'm lying to you. I hope I'm not lying to you. And I hope God sees my heart that I'm not lying to you. But a person could stand up to do all of these public duties and still be a hypocrite. In fact, there's a sense in which reading the Bible is easier than praying. Because when a person comes to pray, unless you are, you are unregenerate, you know whether what you are saying is true or not. Except the person is a stark unbeliever. In the place of prayer, you know whether you are lying or not. Even if perhaps for the sake of performance, everybody's looking at me, let me just pray and put all the words together. Prayer is that pouring out of the soul. You know, this week, I, I was thankful to God that in the Bible he said a man should marry one wife. Because I don't know how it would have been if somebody would go through some of the stress of marriage prep two, three times. There are days I woke up, now I'm trying to be honest with you, and I felt like just knocking somebody's nose, just shouting at somebody. And I'm being honest with us. And it is easy to move from there to the pulpit, and I say, oh, that was a good exposition of the text. But it is when I go before God in prayer that I know that, ah, I know it. True prayer is when we dig deep into our hearts and we pour it before God. When we look at all the problems, all the defects, all the issues, all the mistakes, all of the sins and imperfections we find in our lives, and we bring them before God. And we are not hiding anything. There's a sense in which this idea of speaking in tongues helps you not to pour out your heart before God. It is the perfect escape. So one time in my fellowship then, the prayer leader said, let us begin to confess our sins. Confess our sins. And so you know how it happens. For the first 30 seconds, Oh Lord, we ask you to forgive us our sins. Lade, lade, lade. And then the, 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 the man had to stop them and say, Sorry, what are you people doing? I said, Confess your sins. You may come to a prayer meeting, and then God is already speaking to you about certain things that you need to repent of. Right? But then the prayer leader comes up, and then the drum is. How many decibels? And then the person, the mic is here, and the person is screaming, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, all that, what is working in your heart and your, it just evaporates. And then you just, vroom, 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 and there is, there is mindlessness. How can you pour out your heart before God that way? It's impossible. True prayer involves that pouring out of the heart before God. True prayer is through Christ. Jesus himself said in John 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That, of course, speaks to our salvation, but it speaks to our continual coming to God in prayer. It is on the basis of what Christ has done. And prayer is by the Spirit. The Spirit strengthens us as we pray. 
The Spirit provides life, vigor, vitality as we pray. The Spirit shows us our true needs. The Spirit lifts up our souls to God. And of course, when we come to pray, it is always according to His will. According to His word, rather. Because God is not committed to doing anything He has not promised to do. And it is in submission to His will, as our Lord Jesus Christ showed us in His prayer at Gethsemane. Why do we have to stress this? Why can't we just move on and say, all of us are in church, we know how to pray? Because prayer has fallen upon hard times. We live in a time when 21,000 people, 21,000 is a joke. Think about what a particular facility in this city can carry. 21,000 is a joke. When people were praising 21,000, I said, how many thousand people, how many thousand Nigerians do you think are in the UK, first of all? That is not even half of the Nigerian population. Well, 100,000 people gather weekly in a particular church here. And more numbers that, that gather at conventions in somewhere in Lagos or the expressway. And people gather in their hundreds of thousands and they do not understand what prayer really is. And we must constantly remind ourselves that biblical prayer is that sincere pouring out of our souls to God through Christ and by his spirit in accordance to his word and in submission to his will. And John begins to explain to us certain principles about prayer. And the first principle he gives to us can be found in verse 20, and it is this, that our hearts can condemn us when we come to pray. Through prayer, of course. Whenever our heart condemns us, tells us of the possibility that when we come before God, sincerely, when we are pouring our souls before the Lord, our hearts can and they often do condemn us. When the apostle speaks of the heart here, he's speaking about our conscience. And in August 2021, I preached a sermon on the conscience from uh, Acts chapter 24 verse 16. It's, it's on YouTube, we can go back to refer to that sermon. But then we define conscience as that God-given agent whose job is to commend us when we do right and condemn us when we do wrong. So the conscience is the agent that God gives to us as his people and more than that, God gives to every single human being alive to commend them when they do good and to condemn them when they do wrong in both words in actions, and in even our thoughts. The way to see how the conscience works is to imagine a courtroom where you are in the dock and a trial is being done. And the, the, the witness is brought forth, the first witness, and it's based on what you have done probably throughout the week. And the first witness will be your conscience. Your conscience will tell you the things you have done the things you have failed to do, the things you did willingly, the things you just did because you wanted to please somebody else, the things you thought about and enjoyed thinking about when nobody was seeing you. Your conscience is the witness because your conscience is always with you. And after the witness has provided all the evidence, supposing in that court there is a jury, your conscience is also the jury. Your conscience will weigh the evidence that your conscience has provided and will determine 
what will be the verdict? So the jury goes to the judge. But guess what? Your conscience is also the judge in that courtroom. Because your conscience will interpret the law and give the judgment. Not just that. Your conscience is also the executioner of that judgment. So that the Puritans will often speak of the conscience as the witness, the judge, and the executioner in a man or a woman. So when I am lying, my conscience is there. My conscience will tell me, oh God, you are lying. You are sinning against God. And the conscience will provide judgment. Two types of judgment, of course. The first judgment is peace. When I am in the right, my conscience will give me peace. And when I am in the wrong, my conscience will scatter my brain. It will give me unease and unrest. That's what the conscience is meant to do to us. So when John is saying that our heart can condemn us, he's really speaking about that thing that happens when our conscience stands as our witness, our jury, our judge, and our executor when we come to the place of prayer. But there's a problem. When Adam fell in the garden, the corruption that came through the fall of Adam also affected the conscience of human beings. So that where the conscience is meant to say the right thing, it often says the wrong thing. Think about this. There are many people who go bombing schools, kidnapping people, killing people in cold blood, but they still sleep at night. Why? Because their conscience has been so damaged and been so wired to make excuses for those sinful actions. And of course, we see it every day in Nigerian politics, where a person can be saying something, is lying to you, but he's saying it. And I don't care. What will you do to me? Conscience can be corrupted and is corrupted as a result of the fall. But when we are saved, friends, our conscience is cleansed. Hebrews chapter 10, the apostle talks about our conscience being sprinkled. That is our heart being sprinkled because of what Christ has done. And when we are now saved and our consciences are being trained on a daily basis by God's word, we can to a great extent trust our consciences. Some people come to this passage of scripture and paint it as if the work our consciences do is bad. So they say, whenever your heart condemns you, why does your heart condemn you? You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Really? Why then did Paul say in Acts chapter 24 verse 16 that I always strive to maintain a clear conscience? Paul was standing at trial and he could say based on his conscience that I am in the right. Or why could a man like Martin Luther who was brought at the Diet of Verbs the first day they brought his books and says Luther, and they said, Luther, are you the author of these books? And Luther said, I am the author of these books. And they asked Luther to recant. And the man asked for one extra day. And he went back, prayed that night, struggled in his soul that night, and he woke up the next day and went back to them. And they asked Luther, will you recant? That is, take back these things you have said to be wrong. And Luther said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. 
So when the apostle is talking about our heart condemning us, we should not immediately jump to this interpretation that it's a bad thing. There's a tendency to do that. It's a bad thing. And in fact, most of the interpretations I've heard of this text is, your heart is a bad thing. No. When you are a Christian, your conscience is being trained daily by the word of God, by subjecting yourself to the word of God, and to a large extent, our consciences can be trusted. So John is talking to believers here, or people who say they are believers at least. And he says our conscience will often wait for us in the place of prayer. And when we come to pray, and we sing, we love you, Lord, our conscience will say, really? Are you for real? And now, different people have different sensitivities, the way their consciences behave. And for some, it can be a very terrible experience. When you come to pray, and it's as if everything you are saying, you feel like, no, this is not right, from beginning to end. So that's the first principle, that our hearts can condemn us in the place of prayer. But John also wants us to know this. We must know how to deal with a condemning conscience. We must know how to deal with a condemning conscience. And verse 21 says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So it's possible to come to the place of prayer and our heart will not condemn us. It is possible. So the conscience, again, is not a bad thing. You know, I think about David. When David was confronted by Nathan, before Nathan left, God had pronounced forgiveness. Right? God had pronounced forgiveness. You are forgiven of your sins. But when David was writing Psalm 51, have you ever wondered, was he writing Psalm 51 while Nathan was there or after Nathan had left? Or did he write it before Nathan came? We know that's not what happened. I think this is what happened. After the prophet came and spoke to the king and the king received that verdict of forgiveness, his conscience was still not at peace. Because he could have just said, oh, let's move on. No, David said, ah, no, 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 no. I must deal with this thing. And he went before God and ensured that he had properly, properly confessed his sins. But there's another problem with this text. And it is that the accusation of conscience here is not merely the accusation of you have done wrong. It is the accusation that you are not a Christian. Look at verse 19 again. It says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. Because what our conscience will do for us is not just to tell us you have sinned, go and repent. The conscience work in particular is the one that tells you you are not a Christian. You are a hypocrite. You are a liar. How can you call yourself a child of God when you did not pray for the past three days? How can you call yourself a child of God when you shouted at your spouse? How can you say you love God when this morning you did this, you did that, you did this, you did that. How should, we, how should we deal with our conscience? John says, we must reassure our heart before him. In verse 19. So how do we reassure our hearts? The simple answer is 
by our love. The problem is how he gets to that answer. Verse 19, verse 20, verse 21 is probably the hardest verses in this entire book. There are a couple of problems. Number one, I, I want us to look in our Bibles. In verse 19, the ESV puts a semicolon at the end of the verse and puts a full stop at the end of verse 20. And in verse 21, the ESV puts a semicolon at the end of 21 and puts a full stop at the end of 22. Bible translators for the past centuries have struggled with where this punctuation should be put. John does something with a particular Greek word that makes it difficult to accurately determine where should the punctuation be and where should the punctuation not be. Now, I side with the KJV. I think the translators of the KJV put the, the full stop in the proper place. There's meant to be a full stop at the end of verse 19. Verse 20 is one new sentence, and verse 21 is one new sentence. Why? Because verse 20 and 21 are meant to be contrasts. Look at your Bibles. It says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. Not verse 21. If our heart does not condemn us, this is a case of if you do good, kingdom. If you don't do good, no more kingdom. So to now put verse 20 in verse 19 does not give us that forcefulness of what the apostle is trying to communicate. That's the first problem. The second problem that have plagued translators, this is not even commentators now, but even translators, people who go down to the original language, is what is the tone of the apostle? Depending on what translation you read this passage in, some translations will communicate it to us that the apostle is trying to comfort the believer. That is, he's just saying, receive comfort. So they are saying, if whenever your heart condemns you, don't worry, just remember that God knows your heart. And the most prominent person in this school of thought is Martin Luther. That is, when we come before the place of prayer, and this is a very complex passage, so just stay with me. When we come before the place of prayer, and our hearts begin to condemn us, we should just remember that God is greater than our hearts. So when we say God is greater than our hearts, we are saying God knows who I am. God, you know I love you. So God is greater than our hearts. Therefore, we should rest in the fact that God knows my true intentions. But there's another school of thought, the second predominant school of thought, which the reformer John Calvin stayed with. It is this. That when I come before God in prayer and my conscience condemns me, it is a warning that if my conscience condemns me, how much more God who knows all things? That is, it is more condemnatory than comforting. I'll take it again. The first school of thought says, when I come before God in prayer and my conscience is disturbing me, I will just say, God, you know my heart. I'm your son, and I move on. The second one says, when I come before God in prayer and my heart disturbs me, I should look up and tremble because God's, God's judgment is like the judgment of the Supreme Court. Our conscience sometimes would give us small judgments. You know how we do it in Nigeria now. You go to different courts, then finally you go to the Supreme Court because that's where the final power lies. 
Imagine if after the appeal court has given you your, your mandate, you go to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court now turns your mandate, it is final. So God is the supreme judge and he knows you down to the things your conscience may not even be bringing to your attention. Now I side with this second school of thought. That what the apostle is trying to communicate to us here is not a mere, when your heart condemns, you just look up and say, God, you know my heart and move on. He's saying, when your heart condemns you, be careful. Now, this is somehow in the tone of what he has been saying. In verse 7, he says, Little children, that's of chapter 3, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John is saying, you are a professor. You are in church. You speak Christian lingo. And when you come to prayer with a troubled conscience, stay there. Don't run away. Don't just look for an easy placation for your own heart. Now, this makes sense because... I was in a Christian circle for a while where the answer to every troubling of the conscience is, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I just sinned. And I come to the church and I am weeping for my sins and I am sorrowful. And then the pastor say, why are you all looking moody? Jump up on your feet and say, I am the righteousness in Christ Jesus. And Mumu will jump up and say, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? You see, many people will say, we are holding on to the cross. Everybody has the language of the cross. And everybody is talking about the cross. So this easy believism where my conscience troubles me and I just move on. is not what John is talking about. John is saying this. When you come before prayer, before God in prayer, and you have a troubling conscience or a heart that condemns you, reassure your heart by looking at the evidence of salvation. Look at verse 18 again. He says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By loving in deed and in truth, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart when we come before him in prayer. By loving, we give ourselves, we have the confirmation that we are saved, and when we come to pray and our hearts condemn us, we look at the evidence in our lives that we are truly saved. So when the conscience tells you when you pray, that who are you to approach God? You tell your conscience, calm down. Calm down. I'm a Christian. Look at what the Holy Spirit has worked in my life over these past few years. Look at how I love the brothers. Look at how I love the sisters. Look at how I have given of myself, of my goods, of my life, of my resources to God's people. Look at the evidence of faith that God has worked in my life. So somebody will ask the question, 
Is this not salvation by works? No. When we're in chapter 2, somewhere in chapter 2, I gave this illustration about assurance. And I said that assurance is like a kekena pep. Biblical assurance is like a tricycle. Now, when you look at the structure of a kekena pep, the front tire of the keke is the biggest, and the back two tires are smaller than the front tire. There are three ways that the Bible tells us we can have assurance that we are Christians. The first way is by faith in Christ. The way we know we are Christians is that we have put our faith in Christ. We have trusted in the promises of God in Christ Jesus. And whenever doubts come, we can look at that and say, I am a Christian because I believe in Christ and I keep on believing in Christ and I keep on trusting in Christ. That's the biggest part of the keke, the biggest tire. But there are two other things that we can gain assurance from. And one of it is this, by the works that we have. Our works testify to the fact that we belong to the Lord. Our actions, our deeds testify whether we are Christians or not. And the third is the witness of the Spirit. So what John is dealing with here is that second one. That when doubts come, we can point to the fact that we are Christians because of love. Because of love. The third principle the apostle wants us to learn is that when we have dealt with the condemning hearts, when we have spoken to our conscience and reassured our hearts before God, that makes the difference in prayer. That a confident heart makes a difference in prayer. That a heart that does not condemn, a heart that comes to God in assurance, makes a great difference in prayer. What difference does it make? In the first place, you see, we now have assurance or boldness before God. Verse 21. It says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have boldness in the place of prayer. Now, the word here for boldness has to do with talking freely. Have you ever been in a place where you even know what they are talking about? But it seems as though there is something that is holding you back from talking. You can't talk freely. Have you been in a place where you are being asked a question, but you feel like if I say this thing that is in my mind, something will happen to me. And so I cannot talk freely. I cannot speak with boldness. See, what makes the difference is when we come to pray and we speak to God with assurance in our hearts that I'm a child of God, that's when we truly pray. That's when there is true communion between us and God. Why do we often find it hard to pray? When we talk about pro protracted prayer for long periods of time, sometimes it's this. There's no boldness. There's no boldness. There's no confidence when we come before God. Because if there is confidence, my goodness, the moment we say, my father, and I'm not trying to describe something mystical, it feels as if sometimes that you are taken before the very presence of God and you are not in a hurry to live. We just pray. They say, read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow. And so in the morning, I read my Bible and I pray. What John and what the Lord wants us to have is this confidence and boldness when we pray. 
In the second place, one of the things that an uncondemning heart does for us is that it leads us to pray effectively. Verse 22, it says, And whatever we ask with confidence, of course, we receive from God because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I'll put it this way. God answers the prayers of confident people. Look at the text again. Whatever we ask in confidence, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Why does God answer the prayer of confident people? I think part of this answer is in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1 from verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him by God. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts, the one who is not sure, who cannot speak freely is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now, the person is not an unbeliever. But that person should not suppose when he comes before God without confidence and with doubting that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, the basis, remember, let's go back to our definition of prayer, by which we come to God in prayer is through Christ. The basis is the work that Christ has done, right? Yet, even when we come through Christ, God says that we must ask in confidence, without doubting. And that the person who doesn't ask with confidence does not receive anything from God. You see why this assurance is important? It is not a a, a small matter, which means if I am coming before God without confidence, perhaps I am coming with an uncondemning heart, I should not, so I, God will not give me that thing I am asking for. God, first of all, answers the prayers of confident people because they trust God completely. Because a confident person is stable. But then there's a weird reason John gives us in verse 22. He says, it is because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, this is weird. Why does he say because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him? I'll use the illustration of a father. If you're a father or a mother here, or you had a father or a mother, even if they are not alive, the basis on which a father provides food for his child is because this is my child. And a, a godly father will say, it is my responsibility to provide for my child. Yet, there are times when that child will not get food at the appointed time because the child does not act in the way that pleases the father. Let me take it again. When a child comes before the father and asks for a toy, the father is going to buy that toy because this is my child. But there are times when the father tells the child, oh boy, clean your room, sweep this place, 
cut this grass. And when the child has not done that, and the child comes before the father and says, Daddy, you said you will buy me a toy. The father is within his rights as a father to say, you have not done what pleases me. I will not buy this toy until you do what pleases me. We should not get this idea that we can come to pray and receive because Jesus has done it all. John says, our very obedience to God will determine to a large extent whether God answers us or not. Because many times God is going to discipline his children. How can I tell you to do this and you are not doing it and then you come proudly before me and you are saying, give me this. No, I'm not going to give you. It is within the rights of God as a father through discipline to say, I'm not going to give you. And John says, when we have confidence and we come before God, we, of course, will receive what we ask for because we are keeping his commandments. And guess what? Look at it this way again. When a person is actually keeping the commandments of God, his prayer request is different from the person who is not keeping the commandment of God. When a person is in alignment with the will of God as revealed in scripture, the person's prayers are different. When you come to a prayer meeting and you hear people pray, if you're listening very well, you will know the person who is living in obedience. The prayers of the obedient person will be in tandem with the will of God. Because you know why? The priority of God is also the priority of that person. And he tells us the commandment in verse 23. He tells us that there is one commandment. Notice the, the singularness of what he says. The commandment is that we believe in the name of his son and love one another. Love. And it's interesting that John did not say these are his commandments, but this is his commandments. And I, I, I interpret it to be this way, that to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to love his other children. They cannot be divorced. On Tuesday, we were learning about the models of sanctification. And we said there is a model of sanctification that teaches that the person can be justified and not sanctified. That the person can truly have been declared righteous by God, but is still unholy. And we said it's not possible. Similarly, when God tells a person to believe in Jesus Christ, that command, the other side of it is love one another. And the fourth principle that John teaches us is that the Holy Spirit would further embolden us. Verse 24. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. By this we will have more confidence by the Spirit whom he has given us. I don't think this is really talking about that subjective evidence that the Spirit gives to us. But in tandem with the context, John is saying the Holy Spirit, the job of the Holy Spirit for the believer is to enable you to believe in Jesus Christ. He's going to enable you to obey the commandments of God. He's going to enable you to love the brethren. And as the Holy Spirit provides that enablement, that vigor, that power, that strength to please God, we would gain more and more confidence before him. This is how to deal with a condemning heart. This is how to pray effectively. This is how, in a real sense, to have power with God in prayer. And before we close, I have two quick thoughts for us. And I want to speak to the person who may be struggling with a condemning conscience and can't seem to find any assurance. 
you have tried to look for evidence and there is no evidence. And you are still stuck in that despair. The place to go is to Christ. When God speaks to his children, it is to show those who are not his children that they are not among. When God speaks to his children, the unbeliever should not look at what signs God is asking for his children. Let me put it another way. If somebody comes to your house and asks you for something, I'll use that same analogy I used before, and your child asks you for the same thing, it's different how you respond. If somebody comes to your house and says, I'm dying, I need water, would you start asking, have you cleaned your room? No, you give him a cup of water immediately. But when your son, who has really been disobedient, comes before you, you can say, go away. So, as a non-believer, don't think that what God is asking you to do is to go and look for evidence. You know there is nothing. You have never been to Christ for salvation. No, the first step is that you must turn to Christ and ask for mercy. You must turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Go there for your cleansing. The way to deal with a condemning conscience for an unbeliever is to go for cleansing. This is what the, the writer of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews chapter 10. There is a place for cleansing for you. But then you may be a Christian. You know you are a Christian. And then you still struggle with this issue of a condemning conscience, a condemning heart each time you come before the Lord in prayer. It's possible that you are not taking the commands of the Bible seriously. I'm going to speak to us honestly. There's a kind of cavalier attitude that we bring to our Christian life that is very, very weird. There's a kind of carefree spirit. There's, if you were to look at the priest offer sacrifice in the Old Testament, you will know that this person is going about a holy business. If we were to look at the high priest going to the holies of holies once a year, you will know that this person is not doing an ordinary thing. There's a way in which the Christian life is now put nowadays that it, it really makes no sense. There's so much freedom. I have a neighbor who always plays music when she's washing. And she confuses me a lot. Because on Monday, the kind of music I'm hearing is, it cannot be mentioned on the pulpit. But then on Tuesday, it's a different kind of music. There's an illustration I want to use, but I want to be very careful how I use it. So there has been this stupid thing on social media that tries to ca categorize women into three. If you know it, you know it. If you don't know it, you don't know it. One of the categories, they said the kind of music these women listen to is Mesichinwo, Adekunle Gold. And I was like, the same person. So it has become normal for believers to live anyhow. If you say you are not listening to certain kinds of songs, it's as if, which world are you living in? Ah, you did this world so you never watch this film. You never listen to this song. And so there's a lot of unseriousness with our Christianity. Everything is a joke. Everything goes. We won't have assurance that way. If we don't diligently, the way a believer is supposed to approach worship of God. Now, your, your 
your Manchester people might not emphasize that. You are so diligent, you are so meticulous as though you are trying to keep something that has been written down for you. That's seriousness. Then I wake up in the morning, I am conscious of the fact that God has given me a law as his child. And I am going to approach that law with the utmost of seriousness. You see, when some of us go about our jobs, when we go to the office, you dare not come 801 because you know your madam, she does not know how to talk. She will finish you. And you say, me, married man with two children, this small girl is talking to me this way. And you can't do a shabby job because when you do a shabby job and at the end of the, this thing, they are doing the review and performance, whatever, you know you are going to get caught up. Why do we not take our Christian work that seriously? We must be serious. We must be serious. You see, the way to grow in sanctification is by working as though it depends entirely on us. And the way we would get assurance and confidence is by taking the commands of God serious. But I want to leave us again with the second thought. Friends, the Christian life is integrated. It's integrated. This idea that I can somehow split myself into two or three or four is foreign to the Bible. Preyo, the cheat for exam. But when he climbs up and he carries the mic, we say things used to happen. What nonsense is that? Mama, you change your age to get a job. But you tie your hair very well and say, bless you, bless you, bless you. They call you pastor. Everybody is shouting, pastor, don't come. Uh, you dress like pastor. And yet you change figures at the office. See, you will not grow. Many of the reasons why our Christian lives are where they are is because we think you can just come to God in prayer and just say, God, God of miracle, now my babao. You will beg for bread. Because we have tried to draw a dichotomy. See, effectiveness in prayer is tied to our obedience to God. Which is why God could say, Isaiah could say in Isaiah chapter 59, that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save. The Lord's ear is not dull, that he cannot hear prayers. But your iniquities, put it personal, my iniquities have made a separation between me and my God. It's not to an unbeliever. My God. And my sins have hidden his face from him, from me, so that God does not hear me. May the Lord really take these words, plant them deep in our hearts. And may we really know what true prayer is and enjoy power with God in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, we know how much we fail. And every time we come before your word, we are reminded of just how much we fail to live up to your standards. And yet, Lord, this morning we can come because you have saved us to ask for grace and for strength to live this Christian life. Oh, bless us in prayer. May we each and every single one of us know of power in prayer. May we really know what it means to pray effectively, to pray with confidence, 
And may we see you answer our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.